under your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Uh, hello and welcome to the program. You are listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check us out on Facebook. If you had liked that page, you would already know what we're going to be talking about tonight. Because I'm done. I'm not completely <laughs> done. I, I actually respect the Me Too campaign, the Harvey Weinstein stuff, the tax plan coming out, the... NFL protests, all the other stuff in the news, but I can already tell people are tired and burned out on politics. At least I know I am. So tonight, we're talking music, and joining me is Skipper the Skipper. Yeah, that's what they call me in some circles. <laughs> well, you don't keep your real name a secret. Skipper, well, no, I don't, I don't really. Uh, you know, Skipper's just kind of a guy that I created for uh, the album rock format that I've worked for so, so many years. Well, and what He's is just it? kind of a character that I play. What is it with, the, yeah, is it just in character? Because I've met a lot of people who've asked me, well, is Joey Clark your radio name? I'm like, no, it's my birth name. <laughs> it, why was there this a long time? thing in radio where people would have a different name on air? Actually, the, it was really weird the way mine came about. Uh, I was working for a radio station and um, I had come off of about six years of working on oldies format. Mm. Uh, 50s, 60s, 70s oldies as Wendell J. Okay. And uh, the uh, people at the station were concerned that going to Album Rock, which is what I have worked the majority of in my career, um, that that name would be more associated with oldies and it would not really right. work. And so 20 minutes before airtime, uh, we had not been able to come up with a name. They came up with a bunch of names that I just really was not satisfied with. <laughs> and I had come up with some that they were not satisfied with. And uh, we were sitting uh, actually in the control room and uh, I was about to go on the air, no name yet, and uh, they had uh, cable TV in the control room and they had it on Superstation WTBS. And uh, PT-109 was on. Uh, it's a story of Kennedy during the war, mm -hmm. you know, on the PT boat. Sure. And uh, we were just sitting there and all of a sudden they're on the island and a bunch of the sailors run up to him and go, what do, Skipper, what do we do, Skipper? Hey, Skipper, Skipper. And I looked over and I went, Skipper? And everybody said, yeah. <laughs> and so I became the Skipper like 10, about that time, about 10 minutes before I went on the air. And wow. it just worked. It just And it just happens like that sometimes. It just worked. You can make a snap decision and it sticks with you for decades. <laughs> yeah. and, and, it, and it stuck with me all these years I have been the Skipper. Now, the reason we're here, <laughs> there are so many albums, like I've been to your, your house and you have all these albums everywhere, all these vinyls yeah. and tapes as well, a great setup, a huge collection. And how, what, give a rounded off number, how long have you been doing album rock radio? Uh, I would say I was involved in it as early as 1978, 79. 
Well, seventy-eight, seventy-nine. It is, was a listener before that. But seventy-eight, seventy-nine is the perfect timing because yeah. that is the record we're going to be discussing. Yeah. It this, comes this, out in seventy-nine. This actually, I remember playing this as a current. Was one of the first album rock. I played it actually as a current on an album rock. And session. the album is ELO's Discovery. What was the what was the song y'all were playing off that album? Uh, at the time, it, it was the first track, "Shine a Little Love." Uh, uh, we, yeah. This, this tune right here. Shine a little love. And as I remember, the thing that I that I most remember about Discovery was we started playing this song and we started getting a backlash. Uh, listeners didn't really identify with it. And it really, the album really became more of a pop album right. than an album rock album. Uh, album rock, the only track that most album rock stations even play off of this is Don't Bring Me Down. Uh, right. And, uh, which is a kind of a heavy, you know. Well, it's got that heavy drums. Yeah. It's almost like the Beatles turned up a little bit. It, it, interesting you should say that. Jeff Lynne was very much a study of the Beatles. Uh, there's actually several ELO songs that were basically, you know, Jeff Lynn will tell you they were robbed or pulled directly from Beatles. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, the thing about this album, I think, that made it a little uh, less album rock and more pop rock was the whole theme behind it. And it was, it was not a concept album, but the theme behind it was the sound of the songs. And uh, if you look closely at the title, it's Discovery. Yes. That's not the original title of the album. Uh, it was originally going to be called, and if you look at it, how it's spelled, there's two words, Disco Very. Disco Very, And it yes. was going to be called Disco, comma, Very. Huh. And that was going to be the original name of the album. But in 79, Disco was was going away. And Lynn loved Disco because he said it gave him a freedom to experiment with beats and types of uh, uh, electronic sounds that you don't normally get in regular rock and roll that right. had been incorporated into progressive rock that they had been doing on, on a lot of the other earlier albums. But he could be more free to just do... Songs and not have to come up with an entire theme or write an entire album side and produce it out to get those things incorporated. Well, and really, Shine a Little Love and then Last Train to London are the, in my mind, sound like the disco tracks. On they, they were they were meant to be. They were meant to be because the whole concept behind this collection of songs was to uh, create an album that would cross rock and roll uh, in and disco. So that when it was played in the United States, it would be, you know, maybe better, better perceived on top 40 radio. But uh, disco was kind of fading in 79. Why was there this backlash at that time? Well, <laughs> I've heard about it, like, you know, in Seager, you you know, know, burning in, well, in the baseball it, it, disco, field. Disco burned out. I yeah. mean, it just, uh, you know, there, you know, you got to remember at the height of the disco era, there were entire radio stations in this country that went disco format. And played. Uh, I mean, there were several in Chicago, New York, that played the the same long versions of songs that were being played in the clubs. Four on the floor all day long. Oh yeah, all oh. day long. I mean, that's what they were playing. And, and it, uh, there were a lot of people. There were some. Uh, uh, there was an article in Hits magazine back in the day that said that this was going to be the new music. This was going to replace rock and roll. This was going to be the new standard and what music was going to become, you know, for years and years and years. But it, like many other, you know, fads, 
burned out and people begin losing interest in it and uh then people begin parodying it right which led a little bit more to the demise and so about the time in 79 when uh discovery became ready because see there was a time in this country uh, and, and uh you can look this up online if you had the word disco on the cover of an album you were guaranteed 10,000 record sales. Wow. That's how popular it was from around 75, 76 into 77. And that's why you see so many in the oldies bins. You'll see all these disco Christmas. Mm. Disco, you know, and, and, and just well, different. Disco Star Wars. Yeah, they did. <laughs> I yeah, had that album exactly. Yeah. That's, that's my point because they knew if they put disco on the cover, Boom, they were going to get 10,000 sales. People just would buy it. Now, what were some of the, I guess y'all had callers at the time. Did they, were they saying something like ELO sold out or they're. No, it wasn't really that. It was just uh, the biggest comment I remember, and that's been a long time ago, but the biggest comment that I really remember was it, it, it's not rock and roll. They're pop, hmm. they've pop, they've gone pop. They've gone pop. They're not progressive rock anymore. And it was more about them leaving the progressive rock. Because Out of the Blue uh, was just a monster remarkable uh, progressive rock album with themes that went through the album. You know, the Concerto for a Rainy Day. One of my favorites. And and, and that that was the forte of the band for so, so, so many years. And Discovery was not like that. There was no particular theme. Just this odd sound. You well, know. and Discovery is lacking the string section, right, in many respects. Yeah, uh, uh, Mike, Hugh, and Melvin, the longtime stream section of the band, when they did Discovery, they decided, or Jeff Lynn decided, that uh, he wanted to change in direction. He was going to experiment with the disco sound, and he thought that if he brought the strings along, it just it might not work, he, and he didn't really want to have to do all of the writing for strings. And so he, uh, well, he fired him, but they uh, they didn't do any of the recording sessions. But there were, but one of the things that they did do, and this was kind of common practice in '79, they did a video for every one of the songs on the album. I mean, the entire album is is you know, there's a video for every song that's right. on the album, and they appear in those videos with their instruments. In you know, and in different disguises, and they're there like it's the band, but they were not a part of the album at all. And the only one that ever really returned was, uh, uh, I want to, I think it was Hugh, Hugh or Mick got rehired to do some uh, work on violin on the Time album, which was the next progressive rock album when Discovery kind of didn't. I mean, it was a huge seller, you know, platinum right. record, huge seller, but you know, you always kind of go back to what you know. And, yeah, and Time was a science fiction progressive rock album, and so they brought some strings back on it. Well, and I couldn't place Jeff Lynne. I couldn't place ELO when I first heard them. They didn't sound like... For some reason, I know it's like a very influenced by the Beatles. Or I guess Lynn is British, right? He is. But it didn't to me for the longest time. I didn't even think of them. They seemed otherworldly, like uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, James Gunn said that they, if the Guardians of the Galaxy had a house band, it would be ELO. Right, right. That their music right. seems like from another planet somehow. Well, I mean that's because of Roy Wood. Um, the move. Is, is is and a lot of people kind of associate Jeff Lynn and the Move, and then of course the first ELO album was basically the Move. Hmm. Now the, the Move started with Roy Wood and Carl Wayne and Ace Crefford. 
they were the they were the the backbone of the band for many many years and for and for all practical purposes with a few changes I think Trevor Burton came along and replaced Carl Wayne and then Bev Bevan came in and Jeff Lynn joined the move right at the very end and people always like to associate Jeff Lynn with the move but Jeff Lynn was you know there for maybe I think one and a half albums really and. Uh, he picked up his love for progressive rock and that sound you're talking about from Roy Wood. Okay. Even though a lot of the move stuff is not progressive rock. No, it's kind of just straightforward rock and roll. Like yeah. it does, it's not this... It doesn't remind me of Rush or Yes. It sounds a lot like ELO at times. At times. <laughs> well, and there is... In the same way that you might get a, a Quincy Jones sound, you get obviously anything Prince ever touches, he has a unique sound right. to it. Jeff Lynne has this sensibility where you're like this. Even like with the Traveling Wilburys, and somebody else might have written the song. It might have been Dylan or Petty who wrote the song. You can tell it's Jeff Lynne is the producer behind well, Roy Wood, uh, Jeff Lynn is like the peacemaker. He's one of these kind of guys mm-hmm. that they say when you work with him in the studio or he's working on a project, if, if there are tempers flare or there's behavior, you know, people don't like something. Oh, sure. He is, he's kind of like the Billy Preston of the Beatles. Yeah. You know, he's kind of a peacemaker. Beatles would be fighting. They bring Billy Preston in. And, oh, Billy. And everybody would be happy again. <laughs> Jeff kind of has that talent of doing that with bands. And Bev Bevan uh, was asked to join the move by Roy Wood. He became a longtime ELO guy. Okay. But Bev Bevan's, um, to be honest with you, uh, you know, I personally don't know the man, but I've heard he's incredibly hard to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and Roy Wood were at each other's throats a lot, and Lynn was the peacemaker. And um, So Lynn joins the move at the end. The move kind of... Well, falls in pieces. Well, this is, uh, the move. What actually happened to the move? It's it's a quick story. They had a producer named Tony Zakundri, uh, I believe was his name, and uh, he was trying to uh, promote the band any way that he could. And in 1967, the move did a song called "Flowers in the Rain." Became a number two hit in the UK. At first, nobody was interested in it. It was, you know, not really anything major. But when it was released, uh, Tony put a cartoon postcard in as an extra with the 45. When you bought it, you got this, you know, little thing. And it was a cartoon of the Prime Minister, uh, Harold Wilson, naked in bed with his secretary, uh, uh, Marsha Williams. And, uh, of course, there was a lot of rumors about sex scandals going on in Parliament and in the government in England. Man, times really don't change. And Harold Wilson sued the move and Tony over the cartoon. Wow. And uh, uh, that, of course, pushed the song right up into the million-selling status, platinum-selling status. Everybody had to have it. And uh, it's not really that interesting a song to be honest with you but uh the prime minister won the court case and uh even today still today after the man's death uh any proceeds from that song written by roy wood goes to charity uh they lost all the money from the album that particular album and the song uh if any if you today if you recorded flowers in the rain the proceeds you would pay to the songwriter goes to charity in England. Wow. And uh, it, it's continued on. The courts upheld it even after his death in 1995. They upheld it. And that was the beginning of the end uh, because of the fighting that ensued within the band over Tony. 
it it ate like a cancer at Roy Wood. So ELO comes out of this, and ELO really is Lynn the leader, clearly. Well, it's his it, thing. No, it, it, it actually what happened, uh, Roy became disinterested, didn't want to continue the band, and Jeff Lynn wanted to. And he convinced Roy Wood to stay, but Roy said, no move, can't use that, I'm done with it. Mm. You know, you can do something else. So they became Electric Light Orchestra under Jeff Lynn. And what year around there? Uh, this yeah. is around 70, I guess in the, the beginning stages of it, it would have been 71-ish. Okay. Um, and the first ELO album is actually Roy Wood. It's the move. It's Roy Wood, Jeff Lynn, and Bev Bevins. Hmm. And during the recording of that first album, Roy was just so disinterested in music at the time because of the lawsuit and everything that had led up to it in 67, 68, end of 70. He just walked away and said, you know, I'm out. And uh, so there's some people I've heard, I've read stories that he left during the recording of the album. Other things I've heard is that he left after. You know, but right. he, he was out. I mean, he was just emotionally out. And so then, uh, starting with ELO2, it was Jeff Lynn at that time. And he's at the helm, really. Yeah. And if you look at those albums, uh, there's something interesting. If you want to know the origin of the Traveling Wilburys, yeah. if you look at the early uh, ELO albums, uh, there's a couple of different names that are used, but both of the last names are Wilbury. And as the producer, but that's actually Jeff Lynn, hmm. a pseudonym, you know, Jeff Lynn using a false name is for sure. Yeah, but that's where the traveling Wilburys came from. Okay, <laughs> so you listened to Discovery or Discovery, Discovery earlier today. How <laughs> yeah. long had it been since you'd really listened to that album? Uh, it's it's actually one that I've listened to fairly frequently i would say i've heard it within the last six eight months i pull okay. it out once or twice a year my roommates and i always it's are just, putting this one on i have a rack at the house or a little place on the floor you've seen my listening room oh that, yeah that i keep about 25 30 albums at any given time you know that i'm listening to and that one winds up in that stack at least once or twice a year well and i love how much he uses the space like it over like it really washes over you and even though he doesn't have the string parts like out of the blue for instance and you mentioned like the weird electronic sounds on confusion yeah it has <laughs> all this the sweeping kind of sound still that flowing rhythm and but that disco touch right here that's a disco melody you know yeah. looking for a light airy melody but then how he stacked his vocal. He's not really stacking vocals. He's got this reverb on it. Well, um, Jeff Lynn is a great producer. Knows a lot about recording in the studio and did that with the Traveling Wilburys and with Tom Petty. Yeah. But um, uh, actually, Reinhold Mack is the guy that stacks these albums this way. Okay. Um, he is a German guy, and, and if you've noticed on any of the ELO albums, especially Discovery, they're recorded in Germany because Mac doesn't really like to get out of Germany. He likes to stay there. He's known as Mac. His name is Reinhold Mac, but he's just known as Mac. And uh, uh, people have to come to him, so all of the really great ELO albums recorded in Munich. <laughs> okay. Well, I love it. Including his, Discovery. It was recorded in music. These unsung heroes that are the technical wizards behind this stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, Lynn gets all the credit, and he just now got in, uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think, this, this year? 
Uh, or last year. I think it was last year. Yeah, I, it was I, around see, I, this I, that, And who cares? That's a, that's another that's a really rough spot with me because I'm I don't I do not like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's a whole show. Uh, <laughs> I'd like too Gene, political. Well, or? Gene Simmons has my favorite comment on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and this was made before and after Kiss was inducted. You know, he said the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a popcorn fart in the annals of rock and roll history. <laughs> and that is absolutely true. It is a totally political uh, organization from the very beginning. Only the elite or who, you know, the people with Rolling Stone considered the elite, you know, critics were allowed to pick the first entries. And, and I mean, still this year, like, for example, the Meters, who are one of the greatest bands in the world, out of uh, uh, New Orleans, the Neville brothers have been with them. I mean, they, they're they're, from the, they're not in. Uh, the Zombies are not in. Hmm. But you got Michael Jackson in as Jackson Five and as a solo artist. Now, now, and I'm not busting on Michael Jackson. You know, I I think Michael should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Sure. But Michael going in before bands like the Meters and the Zombies and Judas Priest. Uh, these guys were making rock and roll when you know Michael Jackson was still sucking on his thumb, <laughs> you know, and and the fact that they've they've just made a lot of blunders, and I just I I, I don't I don't agree. Well, and and to me, it's not about the accolade. Oh, I'm in the Hall of Fame, and a big reason why I do an album of the day every day, and why I'm going back, and I especially found it when you look at vinyl records, is it is a commercial product. It is about the art, but it's also a commercial product. I think Discovery hits that center pretty well, that balance pretty well, and and folks want to get all. I don't know. Like we we're commodifying everything. Like we're in a business right now. Like we're you know we sell advertising and you're trying to sell records. Well, that's, that's, what the, the, that's what the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame does. They they have staggered the entry of great rock and rollers, putting mediocre people in with a handful of of legitimate acts that probably should be there for this great big party and promotion every right. year that makes them a lot of money when people come to see the new exhibits while they're on vacation. And and uh, my my the greatest thing that I think I've ever done uh, I was in Cleveland, and some friends of mine said, "You want to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame?" And I said, "I sure do." <laughs> and we drove to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I got a picture of this, by the way. I jumped out of the car, I ran up the steps onto the little commons in front of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I looked at it, held my arms up, turned around, and dropped my pants and mooned the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> no, that's right. And then and I went back and got in the car and we drove off. I've never to this day been inside. No, that's the most. That's almost punk rock right there. Well, just that's, that's just the, that's how strongly I feel about it. I think it's a joke, and yeah. I, I just don't agree with anything that you know. Well, I, mean, I think it's it's when you strike the balance, though. It's when the music is great. When you have an incredible artist that would be making that music, whether millions heard it or not. They would be making it for their uh, local friends and family, whether millions heard or not. But because it is a commodity, because we do have these markets out there where people can make money, make a living off it. And I'm not just talking about the artist, everybody involved in the project. Mm -hmm. We, I hear this music. I have this music. Like yeah. what I have at home is a great piece of music and an artifact, but it's also a, a product. It's yeah. both. Yeah, I, I, and I... And it doesn't I, take away from it. I, I you know, and I, I appreciate the the economics of it, right? But to me, uh, 
being a fan of rock and roll for so many years, uh, to me, every individual album is like its own individual work of art. Yeah. And it's a time capsule to a specific date and a, and a few months in history. And, uh, you know, uh, I mean, ELO is, you know, 13 years, 50 million albums. You know, there's a lot of economics there, but there's a lot of history there when you go back to who was leading progressive rock in 68, 69, 70. That, at that time, it was the Beatles, it was Pink Floyd, and, and there's a lot of arguments on who actually did progressive rock first. I believe it was Pink Floyd. Yes. I think Pink Floyd was the first progressive rock band. I think the Beatles picked up on that as they went along uh, after Rubber Soul, and as you get into Revolver, they start leaning more towards the conceptual rock. And uh, you had, you know, Jeff Lynn and Roy Moore who were flirting with it all the time. And in the late, later albums of the move, you got some progressive rock there, and, and most definitely the first album and second albums by ELO, which are straightforward progressive rock albums. Well, and tomorrow night, I actually have Rick from the Planetarium coming in. Oh, awesome. So we'll be talking about, of course, the you know science, astronomy, the stars, how they can inspire, but also, I mean, they've got mm-hmm. the Floyd Laser Light Show coming yep. up, so I, I think folks can guess what the album of the day is going to be tomorrow. <laughs> um, and which is, and especially as I get older, that album becomes more and more important. Of course, talking about Dark Side of the Moon, but the right. album tonight is Discovery by ELO from 1979. This is how the album opens up with Shine a Little Love. we got to hit a quick break here. My guest tonight is Skipper Wendell. Oh. <laughs> this is fun. We'll be right this back. This is fun, talking music. We'll be right back after this. All the things you've done I wouldn't criticize I guess you had to wait Welcome back to the program. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. My guest tonight is Wendell, the skipper. Hey! And, you know, we got talking off air. And again, folks, the album of the day is Discovery by ELO from 1979. Is, you know, in this world of ours, you know, it could be that governments or very powerful people were the ones commissioning music. I'm thinking of like old classical composers, yeah, yeah. these sort of... Which is know, very common. Big patrons. Um, but when you have a sort of a market society and a free society, you get all sorts of music. And it's when that that balance is struck between you get the economics right, you get the music and the art right... And you are able to not only make a lot of money and share whatever your sound is. Like, I remember Brian May of Queen talking about this, that they would, in the band Queen, would haggle over who's going to get the single. Because they oh, yeah. know that single is yeah. going to define that person's memory when they're on the beach That's right. with a loved one. But, but it defines a whole culture. And it's when that balance is struck between we, we've made a good business decision and we've made a great artistic decision. But the the, the problem is that all the way back to the 40s, really, 
and into the 50s. In the beginning, when when 45 RPM came about, um, there was not a big market for it. <laughs> and uh, long-playing albums, 33 and a third, uh, was kind of the dominant thing early on before that 78s. And uh, it was kind of like uh, throwing stuff up against a wall and seeing what stuck. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of profit in it until you get into... About the mid '50s, and when rock and roll exploded, the teeny boppers wanted those records, and you saw an exponential growth in record sales in the mid '50s and late '50s. It was I mean, mu- right? much more than you had seen at any time past, and that caught the eye of a lot of different people. Um, of course, you had the 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 big corporations like Columbia Records, who have been around since the very beginning. Uh, with Edison and the the rollers, you know the what I call the roller discs, oh, right, tube right. discs, and that sort of thing like that. And uh, they saw the 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 money making potential. And uh, as you progress through the timeline of the labels and who was in charge, by the time that you get into the mid '60s, you've got everybody, including the mob, involved in the labels <laughs> and. Uh, by the time you get to MCA in the uh, early 70s, uh, coming out of DECA records, you've got uh, total mob control. I mean, MCA was under total mob control for a number of years in the 70s. Wow. And, uh, you know, you look at, uh, you get an old directory for MCA records in like 1973, and you look at the president all the way down to about the third string of executives and everybody's got a name like Stukazi. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and, it, and it's just and uh, then you got the what I call the Memphis Mafia uh, RCA Records who had Elvis and uh, really didn't care about anything else that was pressed on that label whenever Elvis hit hmm. because Elvis you know, well, it was a lot of years. I mean, a lot of people, in, uh, you know, there were a lot of people that worked with RCA said, that said, why don't you sign more new bands? Because if you look back in history, you got Elvis on RCA, you've got uh, a few other bands on RCA, but overall, there's not a lot of RCA artists other than Elvis. Right. That were hu- huge, m- m- you know, and And the common thought around RCA was, well, why do we have to have any artists we got Elvis. Elvis but, sells you but know millions sitting on their butts, resting on their laurels with Elvis and you yeah, get that's what they did. That's what they did until until you got Chet Atkins in charge at RCA and, and okay. Chet was you know, to be honest with you, he was just a he was a butthole. <laughs> and uh he was a great guitar player and I know there are Chet Atkins fans. He sold a lot of records, but he was a jerk. Hmm. He wanted to save as much money as possible and in the economics of things, talking about the way art suffers uh, he had his engineers come up. He said, uh, "Any money? I, if he, he if he saved money on production, he got a bonus, and he was hell bent on getting the biggest bonus he could possibly get." Mm. And so he had his engineers come up. He said, "How thin can we press a record?" And so they started working on how thin a piece of vinyl could be, and they came up with Dynagroove, or they actually stole the name. They they had used that as a marketing. Tool. It meant nothing really. Sure, it was just uh, uh, kind of something they slapped on records in the uh, in the mid '60s, and they said, "Well, let's do 
Dyna groove and take it a little further and make the records thinner. And if you've ever pulled out an old orange label RCA album from the 70s, it's like a piece of paper. It'll make that <laughs> sound if you yeah. jump around. And that's because he had them it, press it thin to save vinyl, press more records with less vinyl so he could make a bonus. And well, when some of these behemoths though, would think, oh, we're, they're only thinking about the money, I'd imagine competitors come along and start changing the game. Well, you you did have you did have a lot of labels that popped up, uh, you know, that were all about the music completely, like Stax Records. Right, okay. Stax is amazing. Now, now Stax was all about the music. They they didn't really care about production costs. They wanted to make the best records they could make, uh, whatever it took, until they too got kind of you know, you, 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 as you get into the seventies, late sixties, seventies, and in the eighties, you see merging. You know, labels selling out to labels and, and more and more until you get down to the WIA branch, which is Warner, Electra, which had all been independent labels at one point, but now we're kind of all Grouping all together. together. And so, you know, even Stack started selling out. And, and when that started happening, that was when you had, you know, great producers um, and people like Booker T quit. Said, this no. is what I love, though. We started off by saying how disco was dying when this album Discovery comes out. Right. And so if people and listeners, especially people that love great music, they're in it for the music. Mm-hmm. They're like they've worked all day or you're, maybe that is your work. You're a radio jock and you hate that these corporations are selling out the music. So you demand something else. Mm-hmm. And immediately, I mean, not immediately, but sooner or later, somebody delivers. Some other artist comes along and, and changes the game. And you were telling me before we came on the show that how many versions of Discovery are there? Well, see, that's another thing, too. Uh, people, you know, get an album, and you think of think of any given album in rock history that's your favorite. Dark Side of the Moon, Beatles, Revolver. Yeah. If you, if you like Discovery or Disco Very, yeah. <laughs> that... There's 131 versions of Discovery. Wow. Now, when I say versions of it, they're they're pretty much all the same. They've got the same music. Yeah, it's the same music. In in a lot of cases, it'll be the same songs, but there'll be uh, variations. For example, uh, in some countries, the cover of Disco Very uh, would not work because of the the Persian uh, Middle Eastern look that it had. Um, it just wouldn't work in those markets, and so they had to change it. So in, in some countries, you have uh, the little disc that the guy's looking at on the front cover. That's just the cover of the album. Okay. And, and you have you have variations like that. In, in some cases, you have to change songs, like um, uh, Beast of Burden, Some Girls, Rolling Stones. There's over 236 versions of that album, and there are several that have different songs, different song lineups. Wow. And the reason being, uh, in India, they would not let the album be released because of the song Beast of Burden. Uh, they felt like that was kind of an affront to diff- parts of their religion, hmm. you know, a beast of burden uh, glorifying it or whatever. They wouldn't, they didn't like that, and so that song's not on, uh, well, in India. That song is not released in India. Right. If it's there, it's their black market. Um, ACDC, um, there's several ACDC albums that have different lineups because some of the songs would be too controversial for American markets, so they wouldn't put it on here, but it would be on, you know. 
And, and so, you know... Uh, and what you can play on radio would change, too. I mean, you can't play the same thing in the Montgomery market, I'd imagine, in the late 70s, 80s that you could well, in you had a lot Los of, Angeles. you had a lot of uh, social hang-ups. You know, oh, sure. like, um, let's spend the night together. There's actually... Oh, great it, there, There's a couple... Of, it's, it, this was what was so uh, hypocritical about it, I guess. There's some early versions of that single when it was released. They were worried about the title, so it was released as Let's Spend Some Time Together. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, <laughs> it, it, even though it says let's spend the night together in the song, they they kind of you know they fudged a little bit on the title just to, so it wouldn't sit on the shelf and somebody see it and go oh, let's spend the night together. Oh, oh no, goodness. you can't do that. Oh no, yeah. So uh, so it, it, uh, religious hangups in different countries have led to different versions and. Uh, you know, any given album you have, people say, oh, is this a first pressing? <laughs> well, yeah, it may be, but what version is it? Right, you know, what and, version? But there is a clue to finding this out. Hmm. Um, in the center of every album pressed, when the album, when the needle runs out and the side of the album is over, it goes to the center. And if you look, there's a little band of black right there. That's called the run-out groove. That's what that's technically called. Okay. There is a number etched or pressed into that run-out groove. And you can take that number, and you can find out what pressing it is, where it was pressed. Uh, you can track the album back to the plant where it was popped out with that number. Now, I, we only have about nine minutes left here, and I want to shift gears. Uh, you know, I've been picking up like a reissued vinyls or new, right. brand new pressings, and they're very thick compared to the older ones. Number one, it's a gimmick. It's a gimmick. Yeah. Just the th it's just heavier and looks cooler. Yeah, well, see... But I, here's my actual question. You have problems the thinner you go, the thicker you go, you have no problems. Right. So... When you press an album. Why do you think vinyl has made a comeback? Because there are places, you know, you know turning on the presses again. It, it's like we have all this digital music available to stream. I could hop on YouTube right now or Spotify or whatever. I think, it, I, I think a lot of it has to do... Well, the, my feeling is it's it's more of a hold it in your hand kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you can download an album into your iPhone, but what have you really got? You've, you're holding your iPhone. And you can look the album information up and read it on a screen, but if you've got an album to hold in your hand and you've got that original artwork there, you feel like you own something. Yes. And that's the allure to me. I, I've always said that album collecting is a little like uh, baseball card collecting, only with tunes. Right. <laughs> and and it's like you know, have you got this this one? You know, because they're just pieces of cardboard, you know, with vinyl inside that that plays music. But being able to hold it, uh, the difference in the labels. Uh, some people collect albums for the labels. Some people collect it for the music. Some people collect it just to have it, you know. And, and I know several collectors here in Montgomery that don't even have a turntable. They don't listen to albums. They listen to everything off digital. But they love collecting albums album. to have that album and have all of that artist albums, you know, the original works. 
well, and, and then there's always the proverbial question of does vinyl sound better? And I was testing it out, literally, like taking the ocean off Houses of the Holy, which you mm-hmm. sold me, and it played the digital version in the same receiver off, out of the same speakers, played the uh, vinyl record. And I think I like the vinyl. It's it's a warmer, fuller sound. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's actually just noise. Um, right. Which is the truth of the matter. It's noise. And uh, it's friction. Um, you know, the phonograph needle, when it's tracking on an album, uh, that small little head that's going through there, the friction. Uh, so it's almost like a placebo effect for it, me. It, I'm just yeah, it's, like... it's, just really, it's just really distortion and noise. That's what they'll <laughs> tell you. The only, the only difference in uh, digital music and, uh, and album music is there's a little distortion there. But with the right amplifier, the right tube amps, um, it has a distinct sound. It does. And I prefer it. I just really prefer it to digital. I would rather listen to a, a great work of art on an album as an album than, than as a digital download. Well, it actually makes me sit and listen to a full album, too. Yeah. Whereas before with digital, I'm always, you know, oh, well, let's go to the next song. And when you're at a party and people are trading, like, oh, play this one. You put on an album, you're, and it's a vinyl record, you actually listen to the album. We had a discussion on an online group that I'm in about listening to albums versus listening to digital, and, uh, a guy on there pointed out, he said, you know, I've heard China Grove until I absolutely want to puke. He said, when it comes on the radio, I will punch the radio so fast. <laughs> but he said, if you listen to that song in context of the album, yes, and you track it in context of the album, it's almost fresh. And he said, I can't really figure it out. He said, what nauseates me in my car I love in my house on my turntable as a part of a full side. Yes, a full and story is full story, and uh, and I, I think you know you lose you lose the art in it when you when you listen digital because you have a tendency to punch a track and where you wouldn't get up and raise the needle and skip a track. No, and I find songs that I never would have listened to. I wouldn't have listened straight through. Though sometimes you pick up an album, you're like, I know the one song, and I'm going to find another gem, you know, Diamond in the Rough. And you listen to the whole... This actually happened to me with the Hot Chocolate album. Ah, yeah. Yeah, I was like, okay, everyone's a winner. And I listened straight through to everything else, and I was like, damn, that really was a one-hit one. Let me tell you something. Cliff Cliff Richard, Cliff Richard (laughs) is the Elvis of the U.K., He's had more hits than the Eagles. He's had more hits than Elvis in the UK. Wow. Okay. Okay. He sold millions of records over there. He is a god in the UK. He's still alive, still rocking, still making albums. He's like a Tony Bennett. He's still going. He had an album that came out uh, in the early 80s that uh, called We Don't Talk Anymore. And it's, it's the song that's got We Don't Talk Anymore and Dreaming is on that album. That is one of the greatest rock albums that you will ever experience. But if you hear just the one song on the radio, it sounds like a piece of pop fluff. Right. And people have dismissed it. But if you listen to it in a whole, that album has a lot of rock and roll on it and a couple of pseudo kind of pop songs. And uh, uh, that's a great example of like finding great music. You, you, you hear all the time there's been so many songs that are on the radio and you listen to the album and the album is so much more solid than the single oh absolutely um venus you know the original venus um that's a great album i mean that that entire album is 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 fantastic um 
lot of different pop examples of that in history. Well, and this also, when people talk, oh, you're sitting there at home listening to your vinyl records, you're, you're just escaping from the world. In some ways, it's an escape, but when you actually listen to a lot of these artists, especially these great writers, they have something to say. Like, it, you learn lessons just from, I find old, like, old R&B records. And, like, some of the lessons in those songs, it's, they're, they're poets. They're not just little, you know, pop consumer records. They're not just these weird, drugged-out rock and roll stars. Some of these folks, I mean, sometimes that is the case. Yeah. But some of these folks are truly great writers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it, and it, and it also, it, uh, it kind of, it, along those lines, uh, when you listen to some older albums, you get a feel for what the world was like yeah. in a time that you might not have been conscious as to what was actually going on in the world. Getting Better by the Beatles is a perfect example of that. Lyrics to Getting Better. Now, think about this: these lyrics being released in 2017. I used to be mean to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. Yeah. But I'm... Cha- you know, I'm changing my scene and I'm trying to do the best that I can. You know, it goes on like that. I mean, would you put out an album now that said I used to beat my girl? No, it depends <laughs> on the genre. Well, you, uh, but but you see yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, I, and, and I it's do. like at that time, you know, not that it was ever acceptable to beat your girl, but it would, if you remember the male female roles in society in like 65, 66, 67, things were changing, but. You know, at our at, at my parents' level at that time, you know, to tell your wife to sit down and be quiet was pretty acceptable. Well, and and that's you know? I think the biggest trick rock and roll has done is that some people got in it for the money and the fame or the, the stardom and the the groupies or the drugs and and some people yeah really did try to you know ruin it just trying to make money. But the biggest trick rock and roll played is that for all the other reasons, you get music that I think changed the culture for the better. Yeah. It, it is fundamentally subversive but that's, and about finding your freedom and expression and that's over because now you're not going to find that now uh the majority of the labels now are 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 making industrial music they're making uh things that they've researched they know how many beats per minute how many songs have hit number one with a particular beats per minute uh with a particular key what particular key that a song is in that's it and they've taken all these facts and and that's why well that's why you go online now and see like these country song mashups with 12 15 different songs and it's always the same but melody. i have hope in the sense that it is cheaper than ever before to go buy your own stuff to make your own music and to distribute it yourself and we're Skipper, we're out of show. Yeah, all I got to say in, in closing is we need more artists that are writing about uh, American life and about ideals and ideas. Guys like Sturgill Simpson, mm. uh, if you don't know him, he's writing remarkable music. 